Good morning. So good to be able to gather together to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on this wonderful summer day. I'd love for you to take your Bibles this morning. We're making our way to Psalm 77. Now, here's what I want us to be able to understand as you're making your way there. We are now in Book 3 of the Psalms. As we've made our way into Book 3, there is this sense of gray skies, dark clouds that are beginning to form over Israel. They've been sharing the gospel throughout Book 2. That's become very obvious. But now in book three, what you will find is that there's a sense of the ominous that's coming their way. In particular, when you get to Psalm 77, on through Psalm 83, you are given seven psalms that describe Israel under siege. Whether it be the Assyrians, or later the Babylonians, or the Philistines and the like. What you will find is a series of psalms now in which God is in essence saying, for those who find themselves overwhelmed by the circumstances of life, who feel as though they are in essence under attack, Psalm 77 through Psalm 83 are psalms for you. Psalms to ponder, they're meant to be linked together as a subset under the category of book three of the Psalms. You'll notice with me in the superscription this morning that it is to the choir master. These are Psalms to be sung, what I will call the dark days of life. Furthermore, if you'll notice with me, you and I are told here at this point, it's according to Jeduthud, a psalm of Asaph. And what immediately grabs your attention is that both Jeduthun and Asaph were two extraordinary musicians appointed by David. You can read about it in 1 Chronicles, particularly around chapter 16 who would oversee the musical compositions for Israel's people as they went to worship our Lord. We've just had some extraordinarily wonderful times of bringing praise to God in form of music, one aspect of our worship. That's what Asaph and Jeduthun were all about. They were part of the worship team, if you will, of Israel. And now what we find is that Asaph is beginning to open up his heart to you. He's about to tell you that Israel is under siege. And what Israel is experiencing due to international forces is having a direct impact upon the way in which I am experiencing life in the personal private dimensions, even internally within my soul. And he's going to open up with you. He's going to be very authentic with you as he talks about the highs and the lows of trying to live life well when you feel like you're under siege. I'm going to read verse 1 down through verse 9, trying to get a sense of uh, the flow of the traffic here, if you will, where you read, I cry aloud to God. 
aloud to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. And when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. And then he introduces that musical word, Selah, which is simply a rest in the measure for those that are musically inclined. You pick it up again in verse 4, don't you? You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. He's a musician, you know. Let me meditate in my heart. Well, then my spirit made a diligent search, and here come the questions. Verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? You ever felt that way? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And so he inserts as a musician, as a composer, another Selah, because he wants you to enter into his experience now. Or maybe he's entering into yours. And he wants you to say la now and think about what has just been penned as you look to God in prayer. And now, Father, what we want to do is to be able to explore the verses here in Psalm 77. Israel is under siege, feels extraordinarily threatened, where is God? And how do the promises of old relate? And what about the grace of the past? Is it still for the present? Maybe, Father, there's some here in one of these services this morning. Maybe some watching online right now, and we're so thankful for that. Or in the days to come, such comings and goings in the heart of these summer days with travel, vacations, and the likes. But there's a steadiness of spirit. There's a constancy in your word. And it brings, Father, the turbulence of life and puts it in check when we understand it in relationship to the truth of your word. And so, Father, as we explore and examine these verses together, it's our prayer once again that you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. Pray these things again now in Jesus' name.
Amen. Well, in the Middle East, people have a long memory. Palestinians call 1948 Al-Nakbah, which in English is translated the catastrophe, where Israel gained statehood and up to 750,000 Palestinians then fled. During this time of 1948 and onward, there was an Arab and his name, his name was Gamal Nasser, despite about 30 years of age, and he was a major in the Egyptian forces, and he figured something needs to be done to reverse this trend. It was his objective then to overthrow all that had taken place in giving Jews the land that we know as Palestine. Simultaneously, there was a man in the Israeli forces. He was a 26-year-old Israeli military prodigy. His name? Yitzhak Rabin. And over the course of time, these two men were pitted against one another as they jockeyed for this whole matter of who is going to be sovereign over what takes place in what we know as the land of Israel. Direct bearing upon this passage of scripture. In prior Psalms, what you'll find is that Psalm 74 in particular, as well as Psalm 76, there's references made to both Assyrians and Babylonians, international forces threatening the security and the well-being of the Israelis. And you say, but Gary, what does this have to do with me? When you transfer this and translate this into everyday living, what you're going to find in these 20 verses, extraordinary principles written in what I will call the dark days of the soul that equip a person who loves Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to be able to navigate through the difficult times of life, maintaining a sense that God is sovereign and I can infuse joy into my soul even in the everyday challenges that come my way. And this morning, what I want to do is to draw out from these verses three significant needs that we see here that help us to be able to manage well in the midst of knowing that God is in control. The first flows out of verse 1 through 9, where the psalm is a psalm in which Asaph is seeking a hearing from God. And we're going to pen it like this, that when seeking a hearing with God in the midst of what we might describe this morning as extreme times, I want to begin with you by noting how our, our questions, maybe questions for God this morning, 
how they need to be addressed. Now what you're going to like about Asaph is that he's going to make his way into these questions, but he doesn't start there, does he? No. Instead, it's almost as if in the midnight hour of the soul, all he can do is to find ways to be able to verbally express the deep-set emotions that seem to have been overwhelming his spirit. And so he begins with this sense, I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God. He's repeating himself. You get this sense here that there is nothing of a murmur. Even in the midnight hours of his of his difficult experiences. There is a dual emphasis upon the word aloud. It's almost as if he is shouting at the heavens. I need a hearing. Maybe you've been there. Maybe that's where you are. Might have to do with a loved one. A child. Someone who might be distant from God, making poor decisions. Maybe it's something of your own inner sphere of everyday details of life. Regardless, notice the twofold emphasis upon the aloud, coupled with an I cry. I cry aloud, but notice this it's to God. He just doesn't say, I cry aloud. We've got to have a sense of direction when dealing with our emotion. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God. And then the most refreshing certainty seems to overtake his heart at this point. Does it do for you? And he will hear me. Now, people, when you are seeking God in the difficulties and the challenges of life, maybe it's medical, maybe it's job-related, bring that certainty into the cry. Even if the volume's been turned up, he will hear me. You're on to verse 2. And the day of my trouble... Notice this. He doesn't really say Israel's trouble. No, this is extraordinarily personal at this point. In the day of my trouble, you see, I will seek the Lord. So this man is on a mission. This man is involved in a search. And what he is searching for is something more than answers to life's questions. He is searching the God who is the Lord of such questions. I seek the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I found in working with people who feel so overwhelmed by life, there is something that strains the soul in the nighttime hours of the soul. Are you Asaph? 
Because here in verse 2, he says, in the night. And now we're moving from the vocal to the physical movements. The volume has been raised, but now the hand is being raised. Notice when. It's in the night. The darkness. Others can't see it. God can. My hand is stretched out without wearying. In other words, this man is a determined man. My soul refuses to be comforted. In other words, the internal is driving the external. The physical is representing the spiritual realm at this point. And then he surprises you. He just catches you off guard in verse 3. Because he says, when I remember God, what do you expect him to say? Good things happen. I moan. The reason is, is that at this point it feels as if there is a disconnect between the God who is sovereign over all and the experiences that he's encountering. He's being real with you. He's being authentic with you. This is Asaph. This is David's appointed one. It's as if he's asking questions such as, do you care, God? Are you involved, God? Does it matter, God? And furthermore, when I meditate, my spirit faints. And then he wants you to say, Law. In other words, now he wants you to pause and think about what he has just expressed. Because he wants you to grapple with where God relates into the overwhelming sense of when you feel like you're under siege. And Israel at this point is under, is under a siege. And the opponents view this as the onakpa that needs to be reversed. It happened to Audrey Johnson. She was highly respected throughout England. Born there, educated in Europe. Came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior after years of being an agnostic, transformed by God's grace. And became an extraordinarily gifted Bible teacher and headed off to China in the 1940s, the mission field the 30s. And after being involved in helping develop a theological school in Beijing, Miss Johnson was scooped up with other missionaries and placed in a Japanese concentration camp for what she describes as three extraordinarily intolerable years, intense suffering. She meditated upon Psalm 77 again and again and again during those days. Wondering how she could take her experiences 
driven by what's described here to eventually help others to understand God's grace. We do. Because when she was finally released, Audrey Johnson came to America and began BSF, the Bible Study Fellowship, an international ministry that now has approximately a million people that use her material and format to study God's Word on a weekly basis. What did she do in verses 1 through 3? In her concentration camp time, she did not waste the Selah. She invested the Selah. And the result is, is that others are blessed because she turned her adversity into true, authentic ministry. What are you doing with the midnight hours of the soul? The midnight hours of the soul are the hours of preparation for eventual proclamation of God's grace for your life. But you're still dealing with questions. How our questions need to be addressed. You're up to verse 4 now, and so he's giving you a bit more of an understanding of what of what he has been experiencing. You hold my eyelids open. You ever been there where it's dark and you're just looking around the room? I'm so troubled that I cannot speak, he says. So what does he do? You're up to verse 5. As he allows his mind to go into the past, he begins to retrieve the stories of prior days. And I consider the days of old, the years long ago. He's becoming extraordinarily reflective at this point. You ever done that? And so as he considers all this, he says in verse 6, let me remember my song in the night. I smiled at that point because my former senior pastor of the Moody Church, Erwin Lutzer now, he is the host of a radio program called Songs in the Night. Extraordinarily wise man. Let me meditate in my heart. You take that word meditate in verse 6 and you tie it back to verse 3. You're trying to get some traction internally. And then my spirit began to make a search, made a diligent search. I mean, this man's mind is busy at night. Ever happened to you? Or sometimes when you can't sleep and your mind is, if you will, overactive, and you're almost developing a to-do list. The questions come. Does he start to write them down? Do you? Such as in verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? 
how will God answer? Will we do it immediately? God is silent right now. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Will God respond immediately? God remains silent. He just lets the questions come. Are his promises at an end for all time? Does Asaph hear God saying, check out Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3? Continual silence. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Well, after, after all these questions that come with our first heading, how our questions need to be addressed, you need another Selah. And sometimes God allows you to pose questions to him without offering immediate answers for you. And it's all part and parcel of the nurturing of your soul so that the nighttime hours can be translated into daytime action points. Chuck Colson understood that. I was questioning God's timing. David Bloom, a television news commentator for the National Broadcasting Corporation, had given his heart to Christ while reading my book, Born Again. And following his conversion, David joined a weekly Bible study, seemed to soak up all he could. We're told that whenever he was in New York, he would get together with Chuck Colson and meet for mutual encouragement. As an increasingly prominent television commentator, David chose to go to Iraq during Operation Iraqi Freedom, embedded with a military unit. The armored personnel carrier in which he traveled was a nick, had a nickname, the Bloommobile. One morning, as he was climbing out of the dusty vehicle in which he had been cramped for hours, he collapsed. We're told he was rushed to a medical unit, but dead on arrival, pulmonary embolism. As Colson told this story to a small group of believers, he transparently shared his reaction to David Bloom's death, a young man he had discipled. Why? A question, similar to our first heading. It's a question needing to be addressed. How will God address it? When will God address it? Why, God, did you let this happen? And finally, we had an evangelical Christian in a strategic position on a major television network, young, popular, extremely successful. If only you had saved his life. God, why? Why would you let him die at such an untimely and such an untimely death when he could have served you so significantly with his life? Well, we're told. A week later, Chuck attended David Bloom's memorial service in downtown Manhattan. 
leaders from the media, cities, state, national governments, television industry, prominent citizens, uh, entertainers from Hollywood, family, friends, packed the service. Here's the interesting thing. Most who had come to pay their respects had no knowledge of David's new faith in Jesus. But during the memorial, the emails he had written from Iraq to his wife Melanie were read, and one after another, for the entire distinguished assembly to hear, those emails powerfully and poignantly spoke of his faith in Jesus Christ, his Savior, his Lord. Chuck Colson was sitting among the rows of mourners, and he describes this as his Selah moment. Struck by the realization, now I understand why. God, you've received so much glory in David's death. But it was the last email which Melanie reportedly received from David just hours before his passing, which was published nationally, bearing his testimony. You can't begin to fathom, cannot begin to even glimpse the enormity of the changes I have and I'm continuing to undergo. God takes you to the depths of your being until you're at rock bottom. And then, if you turn to him with utter faith and resolve in your heart and mind to walk exclusively with him, toward him, he picks you up with your bootstraps and leads you home. And Coulson say laws because you see, he realized then David's home. And others now have been given the gospel story. That's what you do with the questions needing to be addressed. But there's a second need here. It's an extraordinary one. Not only how our questions need to be addressed in 1 through 9, critical, but furthermore, how our redemption needs to be recalled in 10 through 15, because there is what I will now call a turning point. I remember at uh, Parkside Church, I was waiting for Alistair Begg to get up to speak. It's where I had interned, interned as a pastor years and years ago. Until I realized uh, Alistair isn't here today. And I looked and it was David Jeremiah coming to the pulpit instead. Come back from out of state to hear Alistair, but there's David Jeremiah, extraordinary expositor, who has a thing to say about turning points, which is what his radio program is all about. This then is Asaph's turning point. <laughs> 
Where in verse 10, he says, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. And once again, all I can say is, sorry, left-handers. He's appealing once again to, he's appealing once again to uh, the right hand of the Most High. My father was left-handed. And at a certain point in his latter years, I had come to visit him in Michigan. And he said, Gary, what is it about this whole matter of left and right? And why is right always preferred? He said, think about it. One is left out. And then there are leftovers. And somebody wrote that crazy book, Left Behind. put my hand on my father's shoulder, I said, right. <laughs> and walked away. My father is now worshiping the one who is seated at the right hand of the father. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the most high. In essence, what he's saying is, I'm going into the very center of where power is. You're up to verse 11, aren't you? And when you get to verse 11, lo and behold, you say to yourself, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. And what captures your attention now is that it's capital L-O-R-D, which has to do with the covenantal relational name of the sovereign one. He's involved, he's engaged in your life. And right when you thought he was so disengaged, the turning point of the evening hours of the soul is such that you say, Yahweh, Lord. The relational one. Yes. I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work. Meditate on your mighty deeds. There is that word meditate again. <coughs> but there's a turning point here. There is a shift in focus. So now, he is in essence shifting now from the I to the you. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God, the incomparable God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm, and here it is. This is why your second heading stands out at this point. You with your arm redeemed your people. The children of Jacob and Joseph, northern and southern kingdoms, redeemed. Redemption carries with the idea to purchase, set free by paying a price. Ephesians 1, 7 
in whom we have redemption through his blood, speaking of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, silver, gold, and the likes, receive, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, without spot, he goes on to say. And of course, Paul and Galatians. Where in Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, as it is written, curses is everyone that hangs on a tree. But then he hammers the nail with Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, by saying, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And now, what Asaph is doing at this point, he is embracing his redemption. And what you need to do in that midnight hour when it seems as though life is so overwhelming and you feel like you are under siege, you take the questions that need to be addressed and you connect them to the redemption that needs to be recalled. You do that. You allow it to speak to your heart. Allow it to pour itself into your soul and you nod your head at the little boy who lost his boat. Remember the story? Tom carried his new boat to the edge of the river, carefully placed it in the water, slowly let out the string. How smoothly the boat sailed and Tom sat in the warm sunshine admiring the little boat he'd built when suddenly, suddenly, a strong current caught the boat Tom tried to pull it back to shore, but the string broke, and the little boat raced downstream. Tom ran along the sandy shore as fast as he could, but the little boat soon slipped out of sight, and all afternoon he searched for the boat. When finally it was too dark to look any longer, he went home. Sad. When a few days later, on the way home from school, Tom spotted a boat just like his in a store window. And when he got closer, you and I are told he could see, sure enough, it's his. Raced in to the store manager, sir, that's my boat in your window, I made it. And the man responded, sorry, son. But someone else brought it in this morning, and if you want it, you have to buy it. So Tom ran home, counted up his money, and when he got back to the store, rushed to the counter. Here's the money for my boat. And as he left the store, he said to his boat, Now you are twice mine. First I made you, and now I bought you. 
For you see, redemption means to purchase and set free by the paying of a price. And Asaph has got to allow that truth to introduce itself to the midnight of his soul. So you're to the third and the final need. It comes at you in verse 16, down to verse 20. Because thirdly, notice how our perspective needs to be renewed. Once you deal with the questions that need to be addressed, and then you embrace this whole matter here of the redemption that needs to be recalled, now you need a renewal of your perspective when life seems so overwhelming. So, like the Saturday night storms of life, when the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. They, indeed, the, the, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrow flashed on every side. He's describing the Exodus account. He's describing the way in which the sovereign God redeemed his people from the enslavement of his Egypt. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footsteps were unseen. You led us through. You got us through. And if you could get us through then, you could get me through now. You call me out of the waters, the great unknown, where feet may fail. And there I find you in the mystery, in oceans deep, my faith will stand. And I will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves. And when oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace, for I am yours. You are mine. Gladys Alwood, missionary to China, forced to flee when the Japanese invaded Yangsheng. But she could not leave her work behind. With only one assistant, she led more than a hundred orphans over the mountains toward the free portion of China. And in her book, The Hidden Price of Greatness, we're told what happened next. During Gladys's harrowing journey out of war-torn Yangcheng, she grappled with despair as never before, and after passing a sleepless night, she faced in the morning no hope of reaching safety. But the night before, she had just been telling them the story about Moses and the Red Sea. And a 13-year-old girl in the group reminded her of this story. Gladys responded, but I am not Moses. And the 13-year-old said, of course you aren't. But God is still God. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. just like God. 
doesn't always leave footprints to be seen. But he's still guiding. So he shifts from the water to the land and ends with, you led your people like a flock. In other words, he got them through the Red Sea and now it's 40 years of wilderness. By the hand of Moses and Aaron, wanderings after redemption, not easy days after leaving Egypt, but through it all, God is still God. Arabs could not get over the pain of defeat. The Israelis never forgot their neighbors, tried to destroy them. Both sides knew that another war would come sooner or later, and Asaph nods his head, as do we. But people, God is still God. Let's stand together. And so, Father, we now offer you Psalm 77 from our hearts to your throne room. We've got questions. But for all who by grace have put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior, we've got redemption. We've gone to the cross where life gets figured out. And now our perspective is renewed. And you lead us on. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.